I invite you this morning in the last installment of our Woven Sermon series, this year anyway, open your Bibles to Paul's letter to Titus. Titus is a short book. It's only three chapters or a short letter. It's only three chapters. It doesn't even take up two full pages in my, uh, in my regular sort of preaching Bible. It takes more pages than that in my study Bible with notes and things, but very short. Uh, Titus is toward the back of your Bible. It's going to be after 2 Timothy and before Hebrew or before Philemon, which is an even shorter letter uh, before Hebrews. So if you get to Hebrews, go backwards a little. If you're in 1st, 2nd Timothy, go forwards a little uh, to Titus. And prayerfully, this morning you received as you came in a little note sheet, a little bifold sheet that you can use to kind of follow along and, uh, and use as a resource in your own study of uh, Titus down the road. These sermons in this occasional woven series cover whole books of the Bible, uh, kind of from about 30,000 feet or so in one sermon to help to give us an overview of the book of the Bible, how it works maybe with other books in the Bible, and particularly how we see Jesus displayed the gospel clearly in each and every book of the Bible today. We'll turn our attention to the last of the pastoral epistles, the pastoral letters of Paul to those that he was teaching to be leaders in the church. First and second Timothy, we've already covered, and now today, Titus. It's always helpful as we try to place this book or or get an understanding of how this book fits into Scripture to understand some particulars about uh, each of the books, the letters that we look at. Uh, The author of Titus is Paul, the apostle. We know a lot about him. We read a lot about his life and his missionary travels in the book of Acts and throughout the many of his letters that he wrote uh, in the New Testament from Romans all the way through Philemon. Paul probably wrote Titus in the mid to late 60s A.D., uh, during likely his final imprisonment in Rome, uh, excuse me, uh, in, in the time between his first imprisonment in Rome and his second imprisonment in Rome, uh, likely around the same time that he wrote 1 Timothy. And if you were to hold up 1 Timothy and Titus next to each other, you'll find a lot of commonalities, a lot of, uh, a lot of parallel statements and phrases and ideas that are there. It seems that Paul had a lot of those things in his mind all at once as he wrote to young Pastor Timothy as sort of his protege ministry who he left in Ephesus, and also to Titus, who he left on the island of Crete to uh, strengthen the churches that were there. It seems that some point, at some point in Paul's ministry, he had planted or started to plant some churches on the island of Crete. Crete is an island in the Mediterranean Sea, south of Italy, and off the west coast of what is today we'd consider Asia Minor, Turkey, and that sort of area. The book of Acts does not detail Paul's effort to plant churches in Crete the way it details his effort to plant churches in places like Philippi and Ephesus and Corinth, but it's clear that Paul had done some work there and had taken the gospel to that place. If we take Acts chapter 27 as the foundation for Paul's ministry in Crete, it would seem that his ministry was very brief. He made a few stops in some port towns along the way as he was uh, sailing westward. Uh, His Work was brief, it was rather incomplete relative to his work in other places, and so he uh, uh, felt it necessary to send Titus to strengthen the churches there. Now Crete, the island, did have a substantial Jewish population, and so it would be no surprise that if it were Paul's desire to start churches there, that he would start in the synagogues, and then after sharing the gospel with Jews in the synagogues, that he would then turn to the Gentiles later, as was his practice just about everywhere he went. But whatever the case was, Paul has left Titus, this younger partner in the ministry, there in Crete for the specific purpose of putting the church into order. 
Chapter 1 of Titus, verse, 15, or verse 5, tells us that specifically. If I were to summarize Titus, or were to summarize it in just a couple of sentences, and put it this way, that Titus is a letter of foundational importance for a fledgling church. You know what a fledgling is? A fledgling is a, a baby bird that's not yet quite able to fly. Titus, as Paul's sort of proxy in Crete, he's the one working on Paul's behalf in Crete, is exhorted and instructed by Paul to lay a foundation of godly leadership, of gospel truth, and of good works for the church in Crete, so that the false teachers who are there might be refuted and that Christ might be glorified. There are a number of themes in this very short book, but three stick out in particular. First, good works are the product of genuine gospel reception. Those who receive the gospel of Jesus Christ genuinely believe it. Their lives will result in good works toward others out of worship for God, that, uh, works that exalt Christ. We see that godliness is a sign of regeneration. How can you know that somebody has been saved by God, born again by the Spirit? Because of godliness in their lives, observable to others. And that finally the gospel is, the foundation, is foundational for everything in the church. In fact, apart from the gospel, there is hardly any foundation for the church at all. And so Paul goes to to pains, he takes pains to encourage Titus to build the church in Crete on a sound foundation. Now, all the Bible is telling a story of redemption, God's story of redemption. From the beginning in creation, when God made man and woman and placed them in the garden to have a relationship of, uh, of knowledge of him, love of him, worship of him. Uh, to the fall, when that same man and woman, woman sinned in the garden, they disobeyed God, ate from the fruit of the tree that God had forbidden them uh, from eating from. They broke fellowship with God. Sin entered the world. Brokenness entered all of creation. Their fellowship was uh, with God was was broken at its very most fundamental level, and they becoming sinners, all of their children, including us after them, are born sinners. We're born with a proclivity to rebel against God, to live life our own way, to be kings and queens of our own lives. And for this, for sin, all of us deserve death. God said it to our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. And surely they did die. Not that same day by God's grace, but in time they died. And all of us will know death someday because of our sin. The great hope, though, that God gives to fallen sinners like us, like me and you, is this hope of redemption, this hope of rescue from sin, rescue from death, and rescue back to a relationship of fellowship with God that we've been created to have. And this redemption he gives to us in his son, Jesus the Christ. God in flesh, God uh, uh, dwelling among us as one of us, our brother, and yet one without sin. Jesus lived a perfect life, never sinning. He lived the life none of us could ever live. And he died a death that he didn't deserve on a cross in our place. A death he didn't deserve, but that we did, uh, that we do. And there he died sacrificially as a substitute for us and for our sins. As 2 Corinthians 5, or, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21 says, God made him, made Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us taking our place in his death so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Here is the hope of the gospel, that though we deserve death for sin, that that God has paid for our sin in his son, Jesus the Christ, and has also raised him gloriously from the dead so that all who turn from sin and trust in Jesus, give their life to him as Lord, will be saved, will be rescued, will be redeemed, and have abundant life with God today and eternal life with God forever, even after we die. 
And that is what we are looking forward to as Christians, that final act of redemption history, consummation, when Christ Jesus returns again to gather all of his people to himself that we might be with him forever. This is redemption history. And we're looking forward to it, it finishing out. But where does Titus, where does this short little pastoral letter fit in the scope of redemption history? Well, I think it it fits somewhere in this area between those last two epochs of God's work of redemption, between redemption and consummation. We see Paul, or the Holy Spirit, through Paul, addressing a leader and a church who are the product of God's redeeming work. The church exists because Christ died to save people from their sins, and they have believed in him. And yet they are people who are also looking forward to Christ's second coming. And so Titus is focused on so much of this time in between in terms of what, how the church lives and ministers and works until Jesus does come again. So how are you taking notes uh, this morning? You may want to take a pen or a pencil and circle uh, maybe those last two epochs of redemption history, redemption and consummation as a placement for Titus in this whole of what God is doing in the world. Now, Titus is an epistle. It's a letter. And epistles are often written, always, almost always written to specific churches or specific people in specific occasions or with a specific conflict to address. Many of the New Testament letters begin with a theological foundation and move to practical application. Ephesians is a wonderful example of this. The first three chapters uh, are all theological. The last three chapters are all practical. But Titus is different. Titus is different for a couple of reasons. One, it's exceptionally short. And also its structure is different from like Ephesians or Romans. Uh, Here in Titus, Paul is placing the theological underpinnings of his application for the church in just kind of all throughout the letter. So anytime you're reading any epistle, whether it's Romans or Ephesians or Titus or Timothy, it's helpful to use a few questions to guide your reading and application. And you have these for you in in your note guide. What is the occasion? What's the issue that the author is addressing? Why why has the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this letter to Titus? What's going on in Crete that, that needs to be addressed? Then secondly, we need to think about what theological principles are guiding that letter. What is always true about God, about his people, about his church, Uh, regardless of whether this letter was written 2,000 years ago or if it were written today. And then once we've understood what the letter meant to them then, then we can begin to apply it to us now. Ask the question, what ways is the occasion of the letter similar to our occasion today? How is Crete then similar to Albuquerque, New Mexico today? And how are the believers in Crete 2,000 years ago similar to us? Where are their situations, uh, 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 where are our situations parallel or or comparable? And and how can we take those principles and apply them directly to our lives? And where there are things that are very different, well, we have to get not creative, but work a little bit harder to say, okay, they're totally different than we were, and we're not in a situation like that at all, but maybe there's something we can learn, apply, use for preventive measures in the future. You have an outline for Titus there uh, in your note sheet as well. Uh, But we will just uh, work our way steadfastly through this whole book today. Because Titus is short, we'll get to read all of it this morning. So keep your Bibles open and follow along. Uh, Many of you may have visited Chicago, uh, Illinois, as though I have to say the state. There's only one, uh, the Windy City. And, uh, and while there, perhaps you visited what everybody visits, the Willis Tower. 
It's better known as the Sears Tower, but Sears, Roebuck, and Company doesn't own it anymore. Now it's the Willis Corporation that owns the tower. But at one point, the, the Willis Tower was the tallest building in the world. It's been surpassed since then by uh, two or three different ones. But it's a massive structure. And if you've ever been there and visited it and gone all the way up in the elevator to the very top and scared yourself half to death looking out over the Chicago city skyline, you know just how immense this structure is. It rises well over 1,000 feet into the air. But there's an aspect of the Willis Tower that nobody sees or cares about or wants to go visit when they go to Chicago, and that's the foundation of the building. The foundation of the Willis Tower, so the Willis Tower rises well over a thousand feet into the air, the foundation of Willis Tower is, is a complex concrete structure that sits a hundred, that goes a hundred feet below the surface of the ground. But the the foundation is not just that. The foundation of the Willis Tower is also surrounded by a series of concrete columns, reinforced concrete columns that go even further down than just the foundation of the building. They go 200 feet down into solid bedrock so that this massive structure has a sure footing so that it won't move, so that in the windy city, this building won't blow over. Foundations are not often seen, and usually we don't give a whole lot of attention to them. I don't know anybody that pays any attention to the foundation of their house until there's a massive problem. And yet they're incredibly important. Foundations are absolutely essential, not just for buildings, but also for the church. And I'm not talking about concrete slabs. I'm talking about theological foundations. What is it that the church must be built on, built around? What is it that it rests on? Paul writes to Titus, in this fledgling church at Crete to say, the gospel must be your foundation. In a number of different ways, Paul addresses this wonderful, beautiful reality. He says, first of all, that the gospel is the foundation of all Christian ministry. All Christian ministry rests on the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died for sinners and was raised again. Follow along in your Bibles, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, he writes, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child and a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. These words, of course, describe Paul's calling to the ministry as he begins this letter to Titus. His ministry comes from God through Christ, and his ministry is for the church. It's for the sake of those who will be saved by the gospel. But I hope you see the gospel in and through all of what Paul has said in these short verses. The hope of eternal life through God's promise manifested, it's demonstrated, it's exhibited in Jesus, who is the content of Paul's preaching. It's the good news of the life that is available through faith in Jesus that Paul has built his whole ministry upon. And it's the very message which God has entrusted to Paul. Paul clearly states in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, he writes to the church at Corinth, I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or much wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. At the same time, at the, uh, and that same simple foundation of gospel truth is grounding Paul's instruction to Titus. It's not just that Paul thinks the gospel is a good foundation for himself, 
But, but even in this foundational letter to his son in the faith, Paul is saying to Titus, Son, make this your foundation too. The church in Crete, as we'll see, was immature, was beset with false teachers, prone to insubordination, tempted to return to sinful patterns of living. They were a, a struggling church. And at the outset of this letter to Titus and to the church, the Holy Spirit of God is making clear through Paul that above all, it must be the person and work of Christ on behalf of sinners, according to the will of God and for the glory of God that must be the foundation of their identity as Christians and their lives as Christians. Friend, what drives you as a follower of Jesus for service in the church and to the world? Is it to be noticed? Is it to be remembered? Is it to leave a certain legacy? What defines the why of your service and the what that you accomplish as a Christian? For Paul, it was the gospel, the good news of Christ Jesus. And that was his indispensable and unfailing foundation. Make it yours as well. The gospel is a foundation of all Christian ministry, but also, as Paul's letter goes on, we see that the gospel is the foundation for pastoral qualification. From the introduction and initial greeting, Paul gets right into the thick of the matter. He doesn't waste any time with any pleasantries with Titus. He just gets right into what he has written to Titus 4. Uh, Titus 1, verses 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination... For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. What Titus must do in Crete is get the church in order. That's what Paul is instructing him to do. These are young believers in Crete, and they are leaderless. And Titus's first priority is to recognize and to install elders, or otherwise called in Scripture pastors or overseers, these three terms that are used synonymously for the same officers, and to do this in every church. Now, in 1 Timothy, as we saw a number of weeks ago, Paul gave the qualifications for those who aspire to be an overseer in Ephesus. But here in Titus, he tells Titus to install men with those very similar qualifications. If you hold Titus 1 right up against 1 Timothy 3, you're going to see almost parallel passages there. It seems here that the church in Crete is so young and so inexperienced and so well, fledgling that even the godliest and most mature men there might not even know yet what an elder in the church is and ought to do to even aspire to it like they would in Ephesus. And so Paul says to Titus, find men like this and install them, appoint them as leaders. Now they would have understood how elders functioned in Jewish synagogues if these believers were Jewish, but we know that not all of them were Jewish and not all of them uh, may know that as Christians that God has gifted them with leaders. And so it's incredibly important for Titus to install these leaders in the church. Now, the qualifications for these men are clear, and all of them, with the exception of one, the ability to teach, all of these qualifications for elders, pastors, overseers in the church are related to the man's character, to the way he lives his life. Paul is absolutely consistent between 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 on this point. The character of these men ought to reflect in an exemplary way the character of Christ. And his teaching, the pastor's teaching, the elder's teaching 
must exalt the truth of the gospel. Elders, pastors, overseers must know the gospel. They must know how it is that God saves sinners through faith in Jesus Christ and be able to communicate sound doctrine and gently refute false doctrine and false teachers. Gospel saturation in the character and teaching of church leaders serves a purpose, though. Paul doesn't say just look for these guys just to look for these guys. No, it it plays out in their lives and in their ministry. Beginning in verse 10 of Titus 1, Paul says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. These would have been, the circumcision party would have been Jews who said that you had to be circumcised according to Jewish law in order to properly be a Christian. Paul continues in verse 11, they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. It's a nice way to speak of your own people, right? This testimony is true, Paul says. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The gospel must be the foundation for the qualification of the pastor. Pastors, elders, overseers must be soaked in the gospel so that when they are squeezed out, it's the gospel that comes out of them. So it's the gospel that comes out of them in truth and in grace because false teachers abound, Paul says, and in Crete, apparently, false teachers abound in abundance. These false teachers are particularly bad for the church because they say all the right things. They know the lingo. They profess to know God. But everything they do, the character of their lives is defiled, sinful. It's not soaked in the gospel, but it's steeped in the kind of licentiousness and rebelliousness that characterizes the culture that they live in. So church, what do you look for in your pastors? Christian, what do you look for in your pastors? I hope that you look for... And I hope that as your pastor, along with Pastor Danny, that we display this kind of gospel character, gospel teaching, gospel saturation, that when life squeezes us, what comes out is truth and grace in Jesus. I hope that we not only profess to know God, but that our works show that our profession is true. It's quite easy to gather a crowd and to gain a following today, even as a so-called pastor, by being a culture warrior either a a warrior for the cultural right or a warrior for the cultural left. And it's not too difficult to learn uh, and to take up the rhetoric of either side that draws the crowd. It's not very hard. The lines lines that we say, the the Twitter length uh, sound bites are already baked in by now, and most of them lack much nuance and charity. And it's all the easier, and and all the easier still, someone can, uh, a particular leader can even pre select the crowd that they want to gain by pre selecting the lines that they want to repeat. Friends, I exhort you. Do not be won, do not be swayed by the words of leaders in churches or the words of leaders in culture just because they are leaders. But be won, be swayed, be convinced by the evidence of the gospel in their lives. Be won by Christ-like leaders, not to follow them, no, but to follow Jesus in grace and truth. Gospel-saturated leaders are foundational for a healthy church. And so Paul says to Titus, look for men like this and install them, appoint them as leaders in the church. 
God, through His Word, is saying to the church today, look for men like this. Follow their example and equip more of them for the future. Don't just find the ones that are among you, put them into position, and then just let it go thinking it'll run itself and you know, whenever they die, we'll just find some other ones. No, start equipping other ones for the future, which has a, 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 there's sort of a, a pointing forward and anticipation even in that idea that, that the gospel is not just foundational for Christian ministry and, the, and it's not just the foundation for godly leadership and for pastoral qualifications, but that the gospel is also the foundation of discipleship of leading and helping other people to follow Jesus more faithfully. In chapter 2, Paul addresses the foundation of the church's future discipleship, how they will help people follow Jesus. In order, he addresses older men, then older women, then younger men, and then or younger women, then younger men, and then bond servants, uh, household uh, servants, household slaves. And here in chapter 2, the focus is on what Titus is to teach as foundational for the church as they follow Jesus. Look along in your Bibles at Titus 2, verses 1 to 15. Paul says, As for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So, older men are to be exemplary in their character. Now, these are not just the elders that Paul is talking about here, but now all adult males who consider themselves Christian. They are all to be thoughtful, respectable, self-controlled, sound in faith, loving and faithful. Younger men are to be the same, with a particular emphasis on self-control. Similarly, older women are to serve as examples of reverence, grace, sobriety, in ways that instruct younger women to do the same as they model this behavior in their lives alongside these younger followers of Jesus. They're not to overturn God's good design in the genders of male and female, but instead to uphold it with dignity in a way that glorifies God who made us. Finally, Paul addresses those who live as bondservants or slaves in this time in Crete. They are to be submissive to their masters in a way that exemplifies honesty, good faith, and ultimately the character of Jesus. These three short instructions in these few verses in chapter 2 are all aimed in one direction, though. Discipleship. Now, discipleship, as we've said over and again here at First West, is simply the process of helping other people follow Jesus. That's what discipleship is. Helping other people follow Jesus. 
older male, older men and women who are following Jesus are to model what it looks like to follow Christ and to help younger men and younger women, boys and girls, to do the same. Even slaves in Crete in Paul's day had responsibility to model what it looked like to follow Jesus to their masters. Not in an instructional way, but in a way that, it, that, that is meant to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I wonder, when we look at the way that we live our lives, and especially the way that we pour our lives out in investing in others, is the gospel adorned by us? This is what, the gospel, this is what discipleship is meant to do. Discipleship is meant to beautify the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves sinners, to show off its inherent glory, to help others look on in awe and wonder at the person and work of Jesus on display in us. And to be sure, this is the aim of the church, as Paul says in verses 11 through 15 of chapter 2. The grace of God to sinful humans brings salvation, forgiveness of sin, justification with God, abundant life in Christ to all who turn from sin. And the gospel teaches us to give up what is ungodly and to take up what is godly. All of this we do. We live exemplary lives of godliness for others to see and for others to emulate as they seek to follow Jesus because Jesus himself died to redeem us from ungodliness and for godliness. Why do we disciple others? Because Jesus died for us. He did this so that the people that he would save by his grace as they exercise faith in him might become a people for himself that are fitting for himself, a people that look like him. And perhaps you're not yet a believer. And you're wondering what, what in the world it is that we're doing this morning. You're wondering what it is that's different about the life of your Christian friends and what their deal is. Well, I hope that what you see in your Christian friends, I hope that what you see in our lives demonstrated even this morning is a picture of godliness. Even if you don't understand why we as Christians do what we do, why we believe what we believe, it's my hope and it's God's expectation that our lives as followers of Christ would at least garner your respect because we're respectable and because we're kind and because we seek what is good and faithful and full of integrity. Quite differently, perhaps you're a believer already, you're a follower of Jesus, but you struggle with this idea of being a discipler to others because you fear you don't have all that's necessary. You aren't equipped to do this. I don't have the curriculum in my back pocket to take somebody through to help them become a better disciple. My friend, if you're a man or a woman who evidences growth in these descriptions of gospel maturity, if you read Titus 2, older men, and you're like, not perfectly, but my life is aimed in that direction, Older women, if you read Titus 2 and you read the description there and you say, man, maybe not perfectly, I'm struggling here, I'm working, but, but that is the, that's the direction that my life is going, you have already all that you need to make disciples of Jesus. Amen. Keep living as one, desperately following Christ, and bring others along on the way to watch you, to learn from you, that they might grow in Christ-likeness too. Not that you might not... Not that you might make a, a, a little version of yourself, but that you, as you follow Jesus, might reflect some of his grace, some of his truth, some of his glory into the lives of others that they might see Jesus more clearly and follow him more steadfastly. But whatever you do, found, ground, set all of your work in discipleship on the gospel of Jesus Christ, Amen. who is our hope in every age. So Paul tells Titus that the gospel is the foundation of Christian ministry. It's a foundation for pastoral qualifications. It's a foundation for our discipleship. 
Because Jesus died for sinners. We, we who know Christ aim to live godly lives that others can emulate. Finally, we see that the gospel is the foundation of our very godliness. Not just our discipleship and helping other people follow Jesus, but the, the, the gospel is the foundation of what comes out of our life and the way that we follow Jesus. As Paul is closing this foundational letter for Titus and for the church at Crete, he gives a blast of seven quick commands. We see them in the first two verses of chapter 3. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. It's almost like Paul knows he's running out of time or running out of paper and he's got to cram some stuff in. Remind them. You know. Now these instructions are, are, they come very quick and they're fairly practical, a practical description of what godliness looks like in jeans and tennis shoes. That is to say, what, godly looks, what godliness looks like in real life. These things may not look altogether different from how normally well-behaved people act though. And so how are Christians that live this way different from non-believers who live this way? To be sure, I have non-Christian friends who who might fulfill most of these descriptions in the first chapters, uh, first verses of chapter 3. So how are Christians who live this way different from non-Christians who live this way? The answer to that question lies in the foundation for acting that way. What drives us to do these things? Paul explains that we're to live this way because we know the gospel and we know the God who has provided it to us. Follow along in verses 3 through 8. See this. Paul says, For we ourselves... Because we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, no, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. That's the word for new birth and renewal from the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, that means being made right with God by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The reason that Christians live lives of godliness and respectability and gentleness is not because it's merely a polite thing to do or even because it's what's best for a well-ordered society, even though these things are, even though these things are good for a well-ordered society. Christians live this way because of the grace and mercy of God to do for sinners what we could never do for ourselves, even in all of our effort to attain it. Where all people are predisposed to live selfish, greedy, rebellious lives ordered by our passions, God has sought to rescue them anyway, to rescue them from this sort of destructive and disruptive life. And this, this salvation, God does, not because we were worthy, but because He's merciful toward His creatures who have despised Him. And He's merciful to His his creatures who have despised His design for us, even in creation. The cost of this redemption project, this rescue project that God does for human beings is steep. It's not cheap. It's really expensive. Redemption comes at the cost of the life of His Son, Jesus the Christ, God in flesh. But to God and to Christ, it was worth it. When we repent of sin, we believe in Christ. We are as 
God in his word says here, we are regenerated, we're born again, and we're renewed by God's own spirit who makes us whole, spiritually whole, and enables us to live godly lives out of love for and renewed relationship with our righteous creator. And Christ offers salvation for more than the purpose of making people live better lives. Jesus died for more than you to be a good person. Far more than this, Christ offers salvation for the purpose of being right with God, being in fellowship with God, enjoying relationship with Him, and not just for a few measly years on this earth, but for a life forever with Him, which is, as Paul says, the hope-filled expectation of every person who knows Him. The excellence, the profitability of the gospel, Paul says, should be obvious, but it isn't obvious to all. There exist some, even who call themselves Christians in Crete, not because they love Christ, but because they enjoy the supposed benefits of being around Christian things. There are some in Crete who do not have the kind of godliness that the gospel is intended to bring about. And Paul warns Titus about people like these. Titus 3, 9 through 11. He says, avoid, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. The gospel is excellent and profitable. All of these other distractions are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, teaching these kinds of things, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Dear Christian, there are people like this who love to infiltrate churches. Seeking to be seen as wise, they bring unjust criticism against leaders They question church decisions with no desire to work for the gospel alongside others. They love grumbling and complaining and and at the same time despise actual service. They love to fight for the sake of fighting, not because they believe in anything worth fighting for, but they live for the attention that controversy brings. And they have no regard for the sort of humility that the gospel produces in genuine believers. They're the kind of people who like to just throw stuff over the wall and see what happens when they do. These are not helpful people for the church. Christian, if you're disposed to be the kind of person who just throws stuff over the wall to see what anybody does with, who throws accusations against leaders without any desire to actually do the work of service alongside others, who question the decisions that our church or that churches make at their members' meetings about the future of ministry and budgeting in the church, if you're quick to criticize but slow to serve, you might be like this person that Paul warns the church against. People like this, if they profess to be Christians, need to be warned and corrected. Brothers and sisters, people like this who profess to be Christians don't just need to be dealt with or politely ignored or just put out of sight. They need to be corrected. They need to be warned. But they, not, must not be, they must not become a hindrance to the godliness and gospel work of the church. Warn them once, then twice, have nothing more to do with them. If they won't listen, they won't listen. Pay no attention to them because of no help to the church. We as believers can trust the Lord that he will deal with people like this in his timing The church has more important things to be doing. And so we don't focus all of our attention on the yahoos and the wackos that are trying to take us off course. In all of this, Christian, what is the reason you seek to be, as Paul encourages the church to be, submissive, obedient, generous, charitable, and a courteous person? 
Why do you do the things that Paul encourages Titus to teach the church to do in verses 1 and 2? Is it so that others will see you like this and so your reputation will improve? Boy, that's Stephen. He sure is submissive to rulers and authorities. He sure is obedient, ready for every good work. He doesn't speak evil to anybody. He's always avoiding quarreling. He's gentle and shows perfect courtesy toward all people. What a dude. Is that, is that why you do those things? So people will think of you that way? Or is it because you know that the sort of rebellion against God, the, the cosmic treason that you have been saved from in Christ and out of a worshipful love for Jesus, you have made it your joy to live in a way that reflects his character and grace to the watching world. Why do you do what you do? Dear non-believer, you probably seek to live a moral and a well-ordered life. Your life in many ways may look a lot like Titus 3 verses 1 and 2. You're respectable and kind. You seek the good of your city, the good of your neighbor. You pay your taxes. You give charitably to causes that you believe in. In many ways, your life looks a lot like a lot of the Christians that you may know. And to be honest, I'm grateful for neighbors like you. But I do hope you understand that your civic and moral decency cannot gain God's favor. And it won't earn you good standing with him. The justification that he offers you is not because of your good deeds, not because you managed to, in your own effort, do a pretty good job of Titus 3, 1 and 2, but because of his loving kindness to you. That's why he saves you. That's why he offers redemption. That's why he offers salvation, because he loves you, not because you proved yourself worthy or lovable to him. Understand this very foundational truth of the gospel. Your good deeds will never prove your worthiness to God. But God is pleased to make you new and whole anyway. Simply because he loves you. If you ground your life in anything, dear friend, ground it in the unshakable bedrock of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The righteous son of God who saves for all eternity everyone who trusts in him and turns from their sins of self-sufficiency to instead live a life of godliness out of love for God who saves us. I hope, oh, I pray that we at First West would be grounded and founded in the gospel, even as Titus worked this same effort in Crete. I pray that all of our ministry would be rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that every one of our pastors and leaders would be grounded in the person and work and good news of Jesus, that our discipleship, whether it's in grow groups on Wednesdays or small group Bible study on Sunday morning or one-to-one over coffee on Tuesday afternoon, that our discipleship would grow up from the gospel, grow up out of the gospel and point right back to it. And that our manner of godliness in the world would be a direct product of the gospel. And not our own self-righteousness. Not our own efforts. It may seem simple. Maybe too simple. But it's so true that there's no better bedrock for the church to rest its foundation upon than the bedrock of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Paul concludes his letter, he says in the last three, four verses, Titus three twelve to 15, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. 
Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let us too, because of the gospel and the overwhelming joy that we have in God's grace to us in Christ, be devoted to good works, kingdom works, and so be fruitful with the glorious gospel that we have been entrusted with. May God speed our growth in Christ's likeness as a church to the very degree that we are connected to his gospel as our very foundation. Friend, this cannot be true of us unless our lives are submitted to Jesus through the good news that we know that he died for sins, was raised again, and calls all people now to turn from sin and trust in him for salvation. If that's not you yet this morning, if you're here, you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian. You wouldn't say that you're one who is following Jesus as Lord and Savior. We invite you, lay a new foundation for your life today. Not on your own good works, not on your own reputation, but lay your life on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. Give up seeking to live on your own. Give up seeking to prove yourself worthy to God and simply rest in the righteousness of Jesus, God's Son, who died for your sins. Resting on Christ, looking to God, saying, God, I'm a sinner, I know it. I can never be the kind of person that, that Jesus is or, or even that Titus 3, 1 to 2, tell me I ought to be. I can never do that perfectly. And I know that even doing those things will never gain your favor, but you are pleased to have favor on me in your son Jesus. So I'm giving my life to him that I might be saved by you. Friend, if Christ is not yet your foundation, I invite you, uh, encourage you, make him your foundation this morning. As we close in a few minutes, I encourage you to come find me after worship this morning. Let's talk today about how you might begin to build your life, not a foundation of yourself, your reputation, but on the foundation that is Jesus. Let's pray together and ask that God, through Christ, would make the gospel our very foundation as a church. Heavenly Father,